Morning, everybody. Children can go to children's church. So, uh, last week I was out, I visited uh, Peak Bible Church. First time I'd gotten to go to the church plant uh, since, uh, since they started a year and a half ago. So, that was overdue, and it was a great time to be with them. Gave my finger a rest. I had that surgery on February 28th, and they, uh, I guess it was successful. They took off about a half inch of the tip, uh, including the edge of the bone, and got rid of that cancer that was in there. And then, uh, I don't know, I know that they've had the lab results have been done, but they haven't called me back, so I called them. So I think I'm supposed to go back. If I understand right, they're going to do one more thing where they're going to go back and like uh, take and do a skin flap that uh, completes it here. I think he held off on doing that until they got the lab results so that uh, they didn't have to go back if there was something and go back in. Anyhow, thanks for your prayers on that. Good to have that done. You know, I, I saw this over the last three days. They had a big conference there at Grace Community Church. It's called the Shepherd's Conference where they have, you know, a bunch of people come in for pastors for at MacArthur's church, and they've been doing this for, I don't know, 40 years or something. And, uh, you know, I guess MacArthur, you know, he had, uh, had to have five stents put in about like a, a month ago, his arteries or whatever. And so, and then, I don't know, a few, a week or two ago, he fell and he broke his wrist, uh, but uh, he was able to come and uh, be the last speaker in the conference. And so, Great to see MacArthur keep going, uh, almost 83 years old, and uh, not going to stop. So can't let stuff stop us, right? By the way, if you see me uh, doing this, I'm not giving you the bird. It's just kind of like I kind of have to put my finger to the side. We went out yesterday and did some evangelism after our men's Bible study. We went down to the park at Acacia Park and, well, Tejon Street, where they have the St. Patrick's Day Parade. It was a great time. About total, about maybe uh, 10 of us went out and uh, shared the gospel. I mean, there's thousands of people down there, so it's a great opportunity. It's like fishing in a stock pond, you know. So St. Patrick, okay, uh, let's see here, because we, we, part of what we did yesterday, we put together a quiz, uh, and uh, this is a gospel quiz. $20 if you get all the answers right. Now you already know you already know them. <laughs> All right, so here's question number one. First hand gets the answer. Where was Patrick born? Where? That's right. Yeah. Second question. What was Patrick's birth name? It wasn't Patrick. Yeah, you doing it again. Who said that? Yeah, somebody up there, yeah. Uh, Mewen Sukkot. Mewen. Uh, third question, why did Patrick go to Ireland? Because he was born in uh, um, uh, Scotland. Yeah, he was born somewhere in England or Scotland. Why did he go to Ireland? He was captured by Irish pirates and turned into a slave in Ireland. Why did Patrick leave Ireland? He escaped. 
But he went back to Ireland. Why? Here's the big question. Why did he go back to Ireland? It's because he had become a believer. Now, he grew up in a Christian family, but he, had be- he got saved and he became a believer in Christ. And when he came to understand God's forgiveness in Christ, that God forgives unworthy sinners, he said, I must take this message back to the people in Ireland that enslaved me. I must bring the gospel to Ireland. So he went back and he poured his life out uh, bringing the gospel back to the Irish. So we, we use this kind of as a little, some of us did as a springboard for kind of bringing it to the gospel and then engaging people. And nobody got the answers right, so, you know, we didn't have to give away any money. <laughs> but then we would pull out a church flyer and say, but you do get a free church flyer, and we invite you to come to Mayfield Bible Church. <laughs> We're in Revelation chapter 1. If you will open with me to Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. When I was here in Revelation two weeks ago, we got down to uh, verse 1 that is really uh, the uh, introduction, the salutation of the book. And in verses 4 to 8, there's a greeting that comes from God, a gracious greeting that comes from God. And last time we saw in verse 4, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, God the Spirit. This morning we're going to come to verse 5. Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and has made us into a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we thank you for this message You have extended grace and peace to us, and uh, that grace and peace comes because Jesus Christ has paid the price to restore us to you. We thank you, O God, for giving your Son, and we thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life, and we thank you, O God, that uh, your Son not only laid down his life, but he had the authority to raise it up again, and he conquered death. And Lord, we uh, have a certain hope. We have a certain hope an eternal inheritance that uh, will never fade away because you have purchased this redemption by his blood. I pray that you would draw us to yourself as we look to your word this morning. We ask you this in Christ's name. Amen. So what we're doing is we're kind of picking up because, you know, this kind of like broke the message in two from uh, two weeks ago. We're going to look at the description of Christ the Son, uh, a doxology to Christ the Son, Uh, a theme statement uh, about uh, this entire book in verse 7, and then a declaration uh, about God the Son in verse 8. So first of all, we're going to look at verse 5, picking it back up, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, where John describes Jesus Christ. And there are three descriptions that uh, we have right here in verse 5 about Jesus Christ. First of all, he's called the faithful witness. Now, you know, we went out yesterday, a group of us, and it was a great time to be able to go to uh, the park and 
talk to people and engage people. I don't think any of us uh, uh, got uh, beat up or punched in the face for sharing the gospel. I don't think any of that happened. You get a few people who uh, might not want to hear what you have to say. I remember when Chuck was talking to one guy over there on the edge of the corner, and uh, you know Chuck's talking to the guy about Christ, and the guy says, well, I'm an atheist. And Chuck just kept on engaging him, and uh, you know, uh, I jumped in a little bit to uh, share a few things before uh, I went over to talk to some other people. You know, we ha- you, you always get opposition from unsaved people because they don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, last night I was sharing the gospel with somebody else up in Woodland Park, and when I told the guy I was a pastor, he goes, oh, I want to talk to you. He came and sat down by me, and we talked for about 45 minutes, and then, you know, I gave him a couple things to take with him. And he goes, ah, you're pushing stuff on me. I go, you're the one that said you wanted to talk to me. <laughs> you came to sit right by me to talk to me. So he goes, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good conversation. But, you know, you're going to get pushback from unsaved people because, you know, when you start bringing the gospel of Christ to people, what you're telling them is you're on the wrong side of the fence, right? You're on the wrong side of the fence. You're a sinner that needs to submit to the Lordship of Christ. You need to be forgiven. You need to trust in Christ. But our sinful hearts don't like that message. And so what happens is you get pushback. But think about Jesus Christ, okay? First of all, he grows up in a big family, number of brothers and sisters. It says in the Bible that not even his own siblings believed in him before the resurrection. At least his brothers did not. So you grow up and your brothers are always, you know, mocking you. And then you look at the wider audience of the whole nation of Israel. It says in John chapter 1 verse 10, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They said, ah, you were born from an adulterous relationship. Ah, you are demon possessed. I mean, they said the worst stuff about Jesus Christ, and they hated him and despised him and rejected him. But Jesus Christ stayed faithful to the very end. He is the faithful witness. The language itself, as you know, the book of Revelation draws heavily from Old Testament imagery, Old Testament language. In Psalm 89, in verse 37, there's a statement, and this is a messianic psalm. In Psalm 89, verse 37, it says, the witness in the sky is faithful. And in all likelihood, John is drawing off of that statement here to call Jesus the faithful witness. He was completely faithful to the very end. You remember that when he was standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate, and Pilate knew that Jesus was not a criminal. Pilate was trying to get out of that whole situation and doing anything he could to try to release Jesus because he knew that the Jewish leaders hated him and were jealous of him. But, you know, Pilate said to Jesus in John 18, he said, so are you a king? And Jesus answered and said, well, you correctly say that I am a king, and for this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify of the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, you know, that Jesus testified the good testimony before Pontius Pilate all the way to the very end. All the way to the very end, he was faithful to God, bringing the message of God's redemption to the world. Furthermore, it says here, it says that he is the firstborn of the dead. 
Now, you know, uh, firstborn very many times would refer to the first child born to uh, somebody. But uh, the idea of firstborn in Scripture many, many times has the idea of one that has preeminence. The Greek word is prototokos. It means the preeminent one. So, for example, when you look at Colossians chapter 1 in verse 15, it says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that he's the first one born, but he's the preeminent one over all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. Why? In the very next verse, Paul says, because all things were made by him. Why is he the Lord of creation? He made it. <laughs> you make something, it's yours, it belongs to you. But the term is also used, that term firstborn is also used in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, a couple verses later, where Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of the dead. Why? He's the Lord of, of the resurrection. He's not just the Lord right now, but he's Lord of the life to come. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. And that's exactly what you see right here in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, uh, verse 5. He's the firstborn of the dead because he has a lordship over the age to come, the lordship over the resurrection. One commentator says here, death is the tyrant that threatens all creation with irreplaceable loss and ultimate meaninglessness. But the one who brings this prophecy has dealt with death and rendered death helpless by becoming the firstborn of the dead. Don't have to worry about death. You should not seek death, okay? It's not good to seek death, uh, not even as a martyr of Christ. You know, there, there were times in church history where you kind of had a martyr complex and, and partly because it was just so intensely difficult to be a Christian that, uh, you know, basically you knew you were going to get killed if you were faithful to Christ. So they'd come and say, go ahead, here I am. You know, we're headed that direction. You know, this morning I saw this article on the news. And so there's this high school kid in uh, Canada, uh, goes to a Roman Catholic school in Canada and, uh, you know, uh, the school is pushing all the queer stuff. And so this high school kid said, you know, uh, we shouldn't have, you know, boys going into the girls' bathrooms here. Men are different from women. That's what he said. Men are different from women. Boys are different from girls. The, the Catholic school called the police and had him arrested. <laughs> Can you imagine that? In a Catholic school, you know? We're, we're headed in a direction here where, you know, I mean, this is not a doom and gloom. I'm not trying to make it like some kind of dramatic doom and gloom. But the fact is, what's happening here in our world, and it's not just America, it's really worldwide. Now, it, what's kind of curious is when you go to certain parts of the world, you know, they do not allow this kind of idiocy, right? I mean, there's many, many parts in uh, places like uh, Africa where they do not tolerate this kind of stupidity. Even in Russia and Ukraine, they don't tolerate this kind of thing. But it's just really strange what's happening, especially with the influence of kind of Western civilization, where we have this perversion that's taking over. And, you know, I, I, think, I think we could be sure that this is going to be an increasingly, um, you know, significant part of persecution of Christians. Ah, you say that there's a difference between men and women. We're going to arrest you and throw you in jail. I mean, this is so weird. 
But in any case here, when we think about persecution, even if it means persecution to the point of death, no need to fear. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 17. When Jesus appeared to John, uh, he appeared to John. John was overwhelmed with the glory of Christ. He fell at his feet as a dead man. And Jesus put his hand on him and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And I became dead. But behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. I have authority over death itself. I'm the Lord of life. I'm the Lord of the resurrection. So there's a whole message here for us about trusting the Lord and not falling to pieces with a world that is falling to pieces. No need to fear what's coming. Look at the third description here. He's called the ruler, the ruler of the king's of the earth. You know, this world has its kings and its presidents and its prime ministers, and a lot of them are really wicked people. Not everybody. But here's what the Bible tells us. Jesus Christ is the ruler of all of them. Now, here's what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age. When Jesus Christ returns, those that have embraced him, whether they're a leader, a ruler, or a non-ruler, they're going to be in his kingdom. But for those that refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the Bible says they're going to be cast out. They're going to be cast out into the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. This also comes out of Psalm 89. In Psalm 89 verse 27, God says, I am going to make this one my promised Son, he's going to be the, it says, the firstborn, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And it uses that Hebrew term in Psalm 89. He's the firstborn. He's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. So as we look at this world that is falling apart, uh, you know, and we see all of the kinds of things that are happening, um, I am sure that you get anxious uh, like I do as you see all the stuff that's happening and you say, this is wrong. (laughs) This should not be happening, right? We get frustrated with all of the evil that's taking over. God's going to take care of this one day. It's not happening right now. Right now, you know, sin is having its party. But like like the Beach Boys said, we'll have fun, fun, fun till your daddy takes the T-bird away. Well, daddy's going to send his son Jesus Christ, and so the party's going to come to an end one day. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, it says that on Christ's robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Psalm 2, King David looked ahead to this day and he says, you are my son. And when the kingdom arrives, it says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give all the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you're going to shatter them like you'll shatter a clay pot with an iron rod. It is not going to be pretty from a human perspective. It is not going to be pretty when God says, we're going to deal with this mess. Now, right now, you know, we may see things happening where, let's just say daily news articles, and you look at, you know, criminals doing all kinds of evil, and then nothing happens to them. I'm sure that gets under your skin because you say that's wrong. Matter of fact, 
They're punishing the guys that are trying to stop the crime. And you say, somebody's got to do something about this. Well, Jesus is going to do something about it when he returns. And it is not going to be a pretty sight when that happens. But God is going to send Christ. In Zechariah 14, verse 9, it says, The Lord will be the king over all the earth, and he will be the only one. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. You can be sure of it. So, you know, if you look around and you say, I'm getting frustrated, it gets me upset and anxious, it does me, and I know it does you as well. But this is why God tells us what he's going to do. God tells you and me what he's going to do so that we can say, okay, I can just trust this good and sovereign Lord. He's going to deal with it. Because we can't stop this stuff. I mean, if there's ever been a place in the world that you've had a prime opportunity for seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ flourish, it's been this experiment called America. The United States of America. You know, for 400 years we had the gospel being heavily, uh, you know, uh, centered in American culture. And yet, look at what it's turning into, you know. Been a lot of good stuff, but there's a lot of bad stuff. So, let's move on here. Come down to verse 5 and 6. After John gives this declaration of grace and peace from Christ, he breaks into some praise. And this is called a doxology. A doxology is praise. So look here in the middle of verse 5. After he talks about who Christ is, he says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This focuses here on what Christ has done for us. Not just who he is, but what he has done. First of all, it says that he loves us. Now most of the time when you go through the Gospels, uh, or rather in the, uh, you know, the, the New Testament and the letters, it oftentimes says Christ loved us. You know, like in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, you know, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And usually that past tense form of verb, you look back at the cross. He loved me and gave himself for me. But here it's actually a present tense form of verb. It's unique in terms of that verbal tense here kind of brings out another nuance. Yes, he did love us by giving himself on the cross, but he still loves us. Some of your translations may also say loved and use a past tense, but that's based upon some of the later manuscripts. The, all the earlier manuscripts say he loves us. Secondly, it also says here that he is the one who has released us from our sins. Again, some of your translations may say he washed us from our sins, but those earlier uh, sources tell us he released us. So the idea is that you've been set free from the penalty. In Colossians 2 verse 14, the Apostle Paul says that he canceled out that certificate of death by nailing it to the cross. When you get in trouble, you know, you wish, man, I wish this penalty could be taken away. You guys ever get in trouble and have a penalty you had to deal with? Like, you know, the speaker in your classroom, Tim Dane, has to come to the principal's office. I didn't tell you about all those, Mom. 
<laughs> or getting a speeding ticket. I haven't had one recently. Uh, I, I did get pulled over last week from a trooper going up the pass. Like, why is he pulling me over? And I did pass him, but I was barely going faster than him, you know? But he said, well, you didn't have your headlights on, and it's getting dark. <laughs> but I literally, this is what I did. I said, I said oh, please don't give me a ticket. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to give you a ticket. <laughs> but when you get a penalty, and you want to have that penalty removed, what a great thing it is if you could have somebody say, uh, case dismissed, Right? This is what the gospel is. God says, case dismissed. You're headed for capital punishment. You're headed for the death penalty. That's what our sin has done to us. It has made us all worthy of death. And that's called hell. But what God says right here is that he released us from our sins. MacArthur made a comment on this verse. He said, here's the heart of the gospel. Sinners are forgiven by God, set free from sin, death, and hell by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because God made him our substitute. God took his life so that the penalty would be paid for us. You know what? Praise God for that. And this is what we try to bring to people. This is what we want to bring to the people around us because everybody needs grace. Everybody needs forgiveness. But there's still more to this good news here. Not only did he release us from the penalty of our sin, but he also equipped us to serve. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God has not been established on this earth yet, but the church is part of God's kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes and begins to reign on this earth, you are going to be there with him in his kingdom. We belong to his kingdom. Now, it also says here that individually he has made us into his priests. We can represent men to God. We can pray for people and we can give them the gospel. We can represent men to God, and we can represent God to men. When you tell somebody about Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're filling that priestly capacity that God has given to you. When you pray for people, you're fulfilling this priestly capacity that God has given. I'm going to ask you to pray for my brother-in-law, Kyle. Uh, it looks like he's going to live, but this past week he was on the edge of death, had a perforated ulcer, uh, almost died. They took him into emergency surgery. Um, and then after the surgery, he ended up on a ventilator. And he's been on a ventilator. I don't know if he's off yet. But, uh, you know, they said, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like right on the edge. And, um, you know, it just puts a burden on me that uh, I need to go back and visit with my uh, step, not stepbrother, but my uh, brother in law and my sister in Vegas and uh, spend some time with them. I need to do that. Just think about the people in your life that you can be a priest unto them by bringing the message of the gospel and praying for them and telling them. You know, I, I would just say this right now. I mean, we went out yesterday. I don't know how many hundreds of gospel tracts we gave out to a bunch of random people yesterday. But every one of you, your greatest missionary field is going to be the people that are part of your life. So think about that right now. Maybe you can make a hit list, you know? 
when I, when I went into the life insurance business, they gave me something called a Project 100. Write down 100 people that you can go talk to. All right, mom, <laughs> dad, yeah, brother, sister. Make out your hit list for people that you want to pray for. That's a great point of application right here, you know? Priest who is God. But the good news is this. The better news, the bigger side of this, is that he has made us, he says, into a kingdom. Now, here's what's going to happen. When Jesus Christ returns, you are going to be there with him. I want you to turn with me to a few passages here uh, and uh, keep your place in Revelation. We're going to come back there. But I want you to turn with your multiple fingers to, uh, first of all, Matthew 19. And then uh, we're going to go to Revelation. Actually, we're going to go to several in Revelation. So let's just look at Matthew 19 for a moment here. Then we're going to be coming right back here. So Jesus is with his disciples. And here's what happens. Uh, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Matter of fact, it was Peter that asked the question. Peter had the gift of questions. And uh, he says, okay, Lord, we have basically left everything to follow you. We've destroyed our business. We've destroyed our pension plan, our 401k is trashing because we've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get out of this deal? Kind of a little bit of a self-serving question, you know. But let's go easy on Peter. He asked the question, what do we get out of this? And in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, the 12 disciples, you who have followed me in the regeneration which means the kingdom. It means the renewal is what regeneration means. In the kingdom of God, when the Son of Man takes his uh, seat on his glorious throne, you, 12 apostles, will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys are going to rule with me. In the kingdom, the 12 apostles get leadership, ruling, reigning, over the nation of Israel. Now, I don't think we have, you know, uh, you know, I don't think we have ballots where we can say, well, I'd really like to have, you know, uh, Maui. Uh, and I'm not sure when we're in our resurrection if we're really going to care about something like that, you know. So if you end up with something, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, some place that is not too cool right now, I'm sure it's going to be pretty cool for you right then. But you're going to rule with Christ. Now come back with me to Revelation and notice what happens here. Look at chapter 2 verse 6 when he speaks to the church uh, and he gives the promises of what he's going to give to his people. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. As for he who overcomes, which means that you're a believer that has been forgiven and overcome the curse of sin. As for he who overcomes and keeps my deeds to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, like the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces. If you are a believer, you are going to rule and reign with Christ. Look at chapter 3, over here in verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You are going to rule with Christ in his kingdom. Look at chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, O oh God, in this prayer, you have made them his people. You have made them into a kingdom, priests to our God and Father, and they will reign where? Upon the earth. Yeah, guess what? You know, this is called premillennialism. 
Christ is going to establish a 1,000-year millennial kingdom on this earth. Now, his kingdom is eternal, and so at the end of the 1,000-year millennium, there's going to be a recreated universe. Christ's kingdom will never end, but there's going to be a kingdom on this earth for 1,000 years. That's what the Bible says. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. We look at the people who would not worship the Antichrist, and they're killed for not worshiping the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And in the middle of chapter 20, verse 4, it says, those that would not receive the mark of the beast, it says they came to life and they reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. That's what the word is millennium in Latin. They came to the right and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And listen, all of this is only for one reason. It's because Jesus Christ paid the price. Let's go to another part of this opening section here. Verse 7, we come to this, um, really it's the theme or verse of the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. Now there's really a combination of two major messianic prophecies that John is uh, referring to right here. One of them is Daniel 7. So turn to Daniel 7 verse 13 and then turn with your other fingers to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is a very significant uh, messianic prophecy where Daniel sees the coming Messiah. And what, what Daniel sees in Revelation, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is Christ at the end of the age when He's coming to God the Father, and God the Father is granting him the kingdom and saying, son, go exercise your dominion on the earth. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And you see it says one like a son of man. The son of man became Jesus' favorite title to speak about himself. More than any other time, he called himself the son of man. It comes right from here. Because Daniel is looking in heaven, looking at God, Almighty God, and then he sees a human figure coming to receive the kingdom. Jesus is God, but he's a man. So he sees this Son of Man coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and it was presented before him, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His kingdom is universal. Red and yellow, black or white, they're all precious in his sight, the children's song says. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And his kingdom is never going to pass away. And it says right here, it's one that will never be destroyed. Not like somebody else is going to come along afterwards, you know. Now, what happens here is that Revelation chapter 1 is pulling off of this verse because it's showing us that Jesus Christ is this Son of Man. But there's also uh, a number of times in the Gospels where Jesus uses this expression to identify himself. For example, in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 63 and 64, when Jesus was on trial, and the uh, high priest and the Jewish leaders were trying to condemn him. They came to him and they said, We put you under oath, Jesus. We adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, Yes, that is true. 
But from now on, you are going to see the Son of Man coming on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Son of Man is a title, just like Son of God is a title, just like Christ is a title. They said, are you this promised one? Are you the divine Messiah? Yes. And what, what was their response? Ripped his clothes, the high priest. Blasphemy! He's claiming to be the divine Messiah. We don't need to take this trial any further. Let's damn him and kill him. He got, he got crucified for telling the truth about who he is. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 30, Jesus is talking about the tribulation period. There's going to be a seven-year time period that comes upon this earth after the rapture of the church. And this seven-year time period is called the day of the Lord. Sometimes we call it the tribulation period. And the return of Christ, the physical return of Christ, the visible return of Christ is going to be at the end of that seven years. Jesus described this in Matthew 24 in verse 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, when you get to the book of Revelation, it's that when you come to chapter 19, verse 11, this is where John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Christ is going to return. And when this day comes, in that tribulation period, in that seven-year time period, there is going to be a whole lot of people that finally find out that the God that they have been mocking and rejecting means business. But there's also going to be, we know very clearly from multiple passages, that God is going to be pouring His Spirit out upon His people in that time period. And His gracious Spirit is going to be drawing His own people to faith in Christ. When it says here, and you come back to Revelation chapter 1, when it says here that all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, uh, that could be referring to judgment, but uh, very, very well best understood as being the repentance that comes by the work of the Spirit. All the tribes of the earth mourning over Him. Because as you go back to the Old Testament passage in Zechariah chapter 12, this is really pulling directly out of Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 is talking about Israel coming to its knees, this nation that for you know, thousands of years has hated the name of Jesus. You know? I mean, a lot of Jews, uh, especially the more religious ones, they wouldn't even say the name of Jesus. They'll say that man. And what's going to happen is that God is going to bring his elect to Christ. And when the Spirit brings them to repentance, they're going to say, oh, what have we done? He is the promised one. Oh God, forgive me and save me. This is exactly what's happening right here in Revelation chapter 1. Now, here's the key point of all of this, okay? You better make sure that you're ready. Uh, Because, uh, you know, you die, there's no makeup test. Make sure you're ready. Lastly here, verse 8, we close with this. A fourth part of this opening right here is this declaration coming directly from God I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This packed with four titles, and the focus here appears to be on God the Father. Four titles. He calls himself, first of all, the Alpha and the Omega. First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Uh, there are a number of times in Isaiah's prophecy where God, Yahweh, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Hebrew, Jehovah, Yahweh says, I am the first and the last. This is the same idea. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. This is God Almighty speaking. Now this title is reused. This same title right here, Alpha and Omega, is used again in chapter 21, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 12. It's even used a little bit further down uh, in chapter 1. But this is referring to God the Father. And secondly, he identifies himself as the Lord God. Um, in the Old Testament, we see times when you see that expression, the Lord God. Matter of fact, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, when Adam and Eve committed sin, and then they were hiding, it says, because they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. That's God. But it's also Christ. <laughs> the Lord God. This expression is used again in 1117, 188, 19.6, 22.5. Look at the third title here. He calls himself the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Remember what we saw in this introduction of grace? John, chapter 1, verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. One, from him who is and was and who is to come. Sounds like Jesus, but he's talking about God the Father. From him who is and was and is to come. Two, from the seven spirits before the throne. It's the Holy Spirit. And then verse 5, three, from Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian greeting. So this expression, the one who is and was and is to come, it's Almighty God the Father. And then lastly here, this fourth expression here at the end of verse 8, he calls himself the Almighty. In the, in the Old Testament when you see this translated, it would either come from the expression, the name El Shaddai, from God Almighty. Sometimes in... Uh, uh, other places is called the Lord of Hosts. One writer says here, Almighty God is found eight times in Revelation, underscoring that God's power is supreme. He exercises sovereign control over every person, object, and event, and not one molecule in the universe, universe is outside of that dominion. That's why you can trust Him, right? If it was all random chaos, what a terrifying thing. But it's not random chaos. He is the Almighty. So, you know, when stuff happens and you say, man, I don't like this. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff we don't like because it's bad stuff. We don't have to erase the idea that there's bad. But Paul did say, he works all things for good for those who love him. So as we close, the Lord is coming and he's coming soon. Remember that old hymn? Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. We don't know when, but he's coming soon. So let me tell you four things that you can take with you right now. Number one, if you have never understood your need for Jesus Christ and opened your heart to ask his forgiveness, do so right now. 
Ask God to forgive your sins because there is no other Savior, no other way. Number two, stay close to the Lord. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. What do you need to do? Stay in the Word of God, stay in prayer, be in church, and serve the Lord. And then call me in the morning. (laughs) Take two of these and call me in the morning, you know? It sounds mechanistic, but those are basics that you need to do. Stay in the Word of God every day. Stay in prayer. And if you say, which one is more important? Charles Spurgeon said, I don't know what's more important, breathing in or breathing out. (laughs) Stay in the Word of God. Stay in prayer. Come to church and serve God. And here's the third thing, that when you look at this world that's falling apart, and it is, hakuna matata, no worries. It is going to fall apart. It is falling apart. It's already falling apart. And, you know, but just don't get too anxious. And then lastly here, tell others about this message, right? You know, especially your hit list. Amen? Lord, help us to be faithful to you. I know that we fall and sin in many ways, and we're not what we should be. So forgive us for our sins, O Lord, and help us to be faithful in following and serving your Son until he comes, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight at 5.30, we have Awana Youth Ministry, ages three years of age through eighth grade, next door at uh, 5.30 till 7.15. If your kids aren't in it, get them into Awana. Uh, Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. Oh, this is a fascinating passage. Uh, So tonight at 6 o'clock, Joshua chapter 5. Wednesday night, uh, the youth group meets at 6 o'clock next door. Uh, This is junior high school and high school age uh, next door at 6 o'clock. If your kids aren't in it, get them in it. And then at 7 o'clock, we're going to be here for uh, Bible study and prayer at 7 o'clock here uh, inside the church. And uh, I think that's all I want to say on that. We did start a little later again today, I noticed. So don't blame me for being past 1130. Uh, I want you to stand with me. Angelo, why don't you come up and uh, dismiss us, please.